It's recording. Hi, Tony Martin here. It's another one of these, I'm afraid. Unplugged. So if you're looking for Sizzletown regular, you probably want to jump to the next one. Uh, episode 37. I think Dave Clacton calls in. <laughs> I can't be sure, though, because obviously it's live. He might not. But I have heard that he's going to. Uh, this is just uh, me droning on about movies and then reading out an old story, like last time. Uh, I'm here in my lounge room. I've got the sofa cushions <laughs> stacked up with a doona over the top. This is how Matt likes it to sound. It's pretty good. Fleetwood Mac could record an album in here. Um, haven't got any sound effects. Beavis and Butthead doll, I've dragged that out again. So, um... Shut up, Bartnogger! You're going to be hearing things like that from time to time. Uh, and as for the theme music, well, uh, Damien Cowell has loaned me a glockenspiel, along with detailed instructions of how to make it play our theme. So <laughs> let's give it a crack. Here we go. Thanks to Allegiance Wines, it's Sizzletown Unplugged. Ah, oh, it's all right. Glock and roll. Yep. And uh, chord change. And uh, back again. Yep. And of course. What the hell is this crap? Uh, now, what are we doing in this episode? Well, a uh, good response to last time when I went through my movie diary. Now, this is a document. Uh, where I've listed every single film that I've seen from 1980 to the present. And uh, I've printed out the second year, 1981. I haven't looked at it yet. And we're just going to go through it and see what I can remember. Maybe you've seen some of these films. I only saw 26 in 1981. What's going on there? This is at cinema, obviously. Not on telly, because, man, I was watching a lot of movies on telly. New Zealand television in the 70s and 80s, you never knew what would pop up on a Saturday night in like the prime spot. I remember they'd always show Seconds with Rock Hudson, very disturbing film. And famously, the lowest grossing studio release of the 1960s. I remember the director, John Frankenheimer, telling a great story that on the opening day, he called up his local multiplex and said, uh, have you got seconds? And they go, yeah. And he goes, right, what time's it screening? And the cinema manager said, what time can you get here? <laughs> so, yeah, let's crack open 1981. That was my final year of high school, seventh form, in Hamilton, New Zealand, at a boys-only school that was largely about rugby. The headmaster, who actually kind of expelled me, Tell you what we might, um, what we might do. Actually, I wrote a story about that. I might read that out instead of what I was going to. Okay, I'll I'll find that. And yeah, it was it was a, the headmaster was an ex All Black, and I remember in seventh form there were like these really dumb guys who were about like. 24, I think. They would been held back for several years because obviously the school wanted them to keep playing in the rugby team. So you had guys in the seventh form who were like already onto their second marriage. So yeah, that was I started the year at school 
and then was asked to leave around about August and uh, moved on to my first job, which was, um, well, it was at an army surplus store. I had three tasks. I was a forklift driver, unlikely as it seems, a ticket writer, and I worked behind the knife counter, just waiting for creepy guys in camouflage gear to come in wanting a really big hunting knife. And can I handle it first? So that was uh, that was what I was doing in 1981. What were you doing? Well, let's see if it is. 1981, the first film I saw, The Final Countdown. <laughs> da 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 What was that? Final Countdown, director Don Taylor. I've given it three stars. Don Taylor, I think he did Omen 2. Could be wrong about that. Final Countdown, it's, um, I'm, I'm remembering Kirk Douglas, it's uh, Nautical Adventures, I think. I think it's, oh, it's time travel. Yes, that's right, an aircraft carrier <laughs> travels back in time to World War Two, and, you know, is it going to stop Pearl Harbor from happening? And I think it doesn't. <laughs> I think it goes back and you're going, oh, this will be cool. And then, no, it comes back to the present and doesn't change anything. Might have that completely wrong. That's what I remember about the final countdown. Then I've seen Smokey and the Bandit ride again. Now, you may be confused. Wasn't it called Smokey and the Bandit 2? It was for the rest of the world. But in New Zealand, it was Smokey and the Bandit ride again. I don't know why that is. Maybe Herbie rides again had been a big hit. Or Alvin rides again. Smoking the Bandit 2, uh, obviously Burt Reynolds, Sally Field, uh, Jackie Gleason as Sheriff Buford T. Justice. Quite a coincidence that the sheriff's name is Justice. And then, of course, there was a third one that didn't even have the bandit in it, or he might have had a little cameo at the end or something. That was extremely poor. After that, I've seen Airplane which you may know as Flying High. That was retitled because it was felt that Australians might confuse Airplane for one of the films it was parodying, uh, the airport series. Man, five star. By the way, Smoking the Bandit Rise Again, one star. I think there was an elephant involved. uh, Airplane, Flying High, I've given five stars to. Of course I have. Also getting five stars, The Shining. Wow, I loved The Shining. But I remember at the time, it was felt (laughs) at my school, and sort of in general, that it wasn't as good as Friday the 13th, which had come out a few weeks earlier and was full of gruesome murders, whereas The Shining, which was essentially an art house horror movie, I think only one person gets killed. Isn't it just Scatman Crothers? I guess Jack freezes to death, but in terms of murders, I think there's only one. Uh, But I loved it. Caddyshack, next. Only three stars for Caddyshack. Why would that be? I think it was because I felt that, you know, the the good stuff was clearly just the supporting characters. Because what was that main plot of Caddyshack? It's like this bloke who wants to be a caddy. We meet like his family under the opening credits and then they're never seen again. It's just Rodney Dangerfield and Bill Murray for the whole rest of it. 
and Ted Knight as Judge Smales. Isn't it? It is Judge Smales, isn't it? Sam Pang will correct me. Sorry, you might have just heard a dog outside. I'll see if I can lure that in for some colour later in the show. Caddyshack, here's what happened with Caddyshack. I remember this. Caddyshack came out on the same weekend in Hamilton, New Zealand as Goodbye Pork Pie, which for years was the highest grossing New Zealand movie ever. It was a car chase comedy, recently remade as Pork Pie by the son of the director of the original. But it was about two blokes. Uh, The main one was actually Australian, Tony Barry and Kelly Johnson, and they... I think they steal a Mini, a yellow Mini, and the whole point of the film was, we're taking this Mini to Invercargill. And then it's a kind of cannonball run-style car chase, the full length of New Zealand. Fantastic movie. Um, But I wanted to see Caddyshack, and I remember my mum was like, well, why do you want to see that? Shouldn't you be supporting our local industry? So I went, all right. So she drops me off at the Embassy Cinema, where Goodbye Pork Pie is playing and I wait till she drives off and then I run like 10 blocks to the Carlton Cinema to see Caddyshack. (laughs) Then I come out of that and run all the way back. Mum comes and picks me up and says, hey, how was Goodbye Pork Pie? And I, of course, hadn't prepared some bullshit. So I remember describing a scene from Caddyshack as though it had happened in Goodbye Pork Pie and saying, oh, yeah, there's a great bit where there was a Chiquito bar floating in a swimming pool and everyone thought it was a turd. Mum's going, gee, that doesn't sound like Goodbye Pork Pie. Anyway, years later, uh, Goodbye Pork Pie was on TV. Mum's called me up and go, I didn't see that chocolate bar scene. <laughs> what a scam. Uh, all right, number six on the list, double feature, National Lampoon's Animal House. Four stars. That must have been the first time I'd seen that. So that's a few years after it's been out. Probably everyone had acted out all the good bits for me by then. So I've only given it four. Uh, And then the Blues Brothers. Five stars for the Blues Brothers. God, we loved it. Then I spent, you know, years reading how terrible it was. Lifeless, overblown comedy. But we fucking loved it. Uh, Jabberwocky. I've only given that two. That's right, because that was promoted sort of misleadingly in New Zealand as Monty Python's Jabberwocky, because, you know, it looked and sounded and felt like a Monty Python movie from a distance, but it was actually kind of a horror movie, really. Um, Only two. Wow. Live and Let Die. Many years after its initial release, I've given that three stars. Roger Moore's first James Bond movie, of course, great theme song. I'm assuming it's now considered problematic because isn't he loose in Harlem? <laughs> it's like the era of black exploitation. I remember him running across some crocodiles in like a pair of tan slacks and a blazer. I thought it was pretty good. Great speedboat chase, if I remember. Flash Gordon. Only two stars for Flash Gordon. Directed by Mike Hodges, director of Git Carter and Morons from Outer Space, if I remember. Sorry if anyone's offended by the word moron. I know there's been trouble in the past. Should put a warning on the front of this. 
who was Flash Gordon? Was it the bloke from the Stuntman? No, that's someone else. Sam, I want to say Jones. Was, could Sam Jones have been Flash Gordon? Anyway, I know that he didn't really do anything else except he was the star of that TV show called The Highwayman and his sidekick was Mark Jacko Jackson. I remember that. Then I've seen The Jungle Book, which I've given four stars. That would have been the 60s cartoon one. That's right. And George Sanders was the voice of, was he the snake or the lion? I think he was the lion. And I remember thinking, hang on, why is Peter Sellers as grit pipe thin from The Goon Show doing that voice? And then a grown-up explained that grit pipe thin was a piss take of George Sanders, and this was the real George Sanders. Moving on to The Fog, John Carpenter's The Fog. Now, at this point, I haven't seen Halloween. I don't think I was old enough to see Halloween. But The Fog was his follow-up, and quite an old-fashioned sort of horror movie, if I remember. Was it Adrian Barbeau, the Scream Queen? I think she was in there. It was a lighthouse. Someone got stabbed in the eye. That was very disturbing. Othello, director Stuart Burge, two stars. <laughs> Not a fan of the Shakespeare, clearly, at this point. Why have I... Oh, that must have been for... Oh, yes. Yes, this was a school screening of the 1960s Othello with uh, Laurence Olivier and I think uh, Frank Finlay as Iago. And what I remember about that screening, okay, you've got all this, you know, classic uh, literature and prose and wordplay from the bard, but no, what did our class like the most? We liked that at one point, Laurence Olivier turned his head and you could see where the black makeup ended. We all agreed that was the highlight of the movie. Terrible. Uh, then I've seen Excalibur, John Borman's Excalibur, which I've given four stars. I remember our uh, art teacher, Mr. Izzard, took us to see that. Very gruesome, if I remember. A lot of people early on in their careers, like uh, Liam Neeson and uh, maybe Gabriel Byrne might have been in there. Plucker Duck. No, sorry, he wasn't. In Excalibur, I tell you, there's one great bit in Excalibur, and I remember um, renting the VHS to try and see if I could work out how it was done. And it's a scene where uh, Sir Lancelot, who was uh, uh, Nicholas Clay, don't think we've heard from him. I think he might be dead. Move on. Uh, he wakes up in the nude in a forest, and he's got a sword through his stomach, and then he pulls the sword out. And this is pre-CGI. I remember, you have a look at it. You cannot work out how they've done it. It's one of the great special effects. <laughs> As a young kid, that's all I was interested in. Wires, how things were done. Is that a blue screen? Forget the prose of Shakespeare. We just want to know how they're doing the sword coming out. Uh, then I've seen Revenge of the Pink Panther for the second time. Now, this I'm pretty sure, this is 1981, I'm pretty sure this is a screening, I've written about this somewhere, on the day of the famous 
Springbok Rugby Tour of New Zealand where uh, protesters crowded onto the field and prevented the game from going ahead in Hamilton. And this was like international news. And where was I? I was off to a five o'clock screening of Revenge of the Pink Panther. But I remember I was walking up uh, Main Street of Hamilton and I was crossing the road to the cinema and there were just protesters with cops and smoke bombs all coming down the street towards me. And a guy drives at me and I leap out of the way like in a movie and smash my shin against the tow bar, but was nearly killed. Would I have been the only fatality? Because I don't think anyone actually died that day. But anyway, it didn't stop me from uh, going to Revenge of the Pink Panther for the second time. Revenge, that's the one where Cato is standing on Cluzo's shoulders looking through a window, and then uh, Cluzo goes, let me stand on your shoulders because I'm taller than you. Thought that was hilarious. Then I've seen Clash of the Titans. Oh, that was maybe the last Ray Harryhausen stop-motion animation. And it was, you know, I love Ray Harryhausen, but it was kind of at the end of that, wasn't it? It wasn't great. I've only given it two stars. Laurence Olivier was in that one as well, playing Zeus, looking very bored, just collecting a paycheck. Looking at his watch at one point, I think. Uh, then I've seen the Apple Dumpling Gang Rides Again. <laughs> Another Rides Again. We loved Rides Again in New Zealand. Vincent McEverty, director, only given it two stars. Don Knotts. I'm assuming Tim Conway. See, I haven't seen the original Apple Dumpling Gang, so presumably I was completely mystified by that. Oh, another two-star film, Caveman with Ringo Starr. And I think a very young uh, Dennis Quaid. And, of course, Barbara Bach. And, yeah, sort of caveman hijinks directed by Carl Gottlieb, the screenwriter of Jaws. Wow. And then years later, they did that one year one, and I think it was equally as poor. There's just no laughs to be had with cavemen, is there? It's a blind alley for comedy. Uh, Breaking Away, I've given four stars to. It's, um, I guess, coming-of-age film. Uh, Dennis Quaid again. Dennis Christopher. Uh, big cycling race at the end. But what I remember is me and my friend, uh, Peter Kalksma thought that the funniest thing we'd ever seen in a film was Paul Dooley, great actor who was in a lot of the Robert Altman films, plays Wimpy in Popeye. He uh, was Dennis Christopher's dad. And I can't remember the context, but there's a scene where uh, his dad is maybe a car salesman and his son turns up and his dad's trying to sell a car to someone and his son says something embarrassing and Paul Tooley just looks at him and goes, who are you? (laughs) We thought that was the funniest thing we'd ever heard. Obviously, it only makes sense in the context of the film. Pardon me. Uh, Holy Moses, that's W-H-O-L-L-Y, Moses, one star. Oh, dear, this is a Dudley Moore comedy, a kind of attempt to have a bit of that Life of Brian action. Absolutely shithouse. I remember the only thing I liked was John Ritter 
as the devil. John Ritter from Three's Company, very underrated comedy actor. Last film, I think, was Bad Santa. Very funny man. Uh, Then I've been to see Fantastic Animation Festival. Various. Three stars. That was one of these things where they would just bash a whole lot of animated shorts together uh, as kind of like a an LSD fueled fantasia kind of film for stoners and i remember it had a it's right it had a short in it called Bambi versus Godzilla which had a really long titles and then there was Bambi and then a foot just crushed Bambi and then there was really long end titles <laughs> i think that was one of them then I've seen Altered States Ken Russell's Altered States i think the first film for William Hurt, and that was also very kind of LSD-influenced, I think. It might have been the last film written by Paddy Chayefsky. Ken Russell. She, I, uh, only a few years after this, like about maybe, so it's 1981, in 1994, I interviewed Ken Russell on Denton. Andrew Denton had a show on Channel 7 called Denton, and... In one episode, he got me to be his stunt double. And Ken Russell was a guest on the show. And Andrew said, you just sit next to me and you chuck in the odd question. And Ken Russell was shit-faced drunk. And I'm pretty sure for the whole interview, he just thought we were one person and he was seeing double. Altered states, indeed. Uh, Number 23 on the list and by this time I must have left school, Night Games. Oh, dear. One star. Director Roger Vadim. Okay, this is some kind of softcore porn, I'm guessing. And embarrassingly, I've probably only gone to see this because boobs. Um, There's no other way of putting it. That's what was going on there. Um... Roger Vadim, the director of uh, Barbarella, possibly married to Jane Fonda at some point. Um, Yeah, boobs. There's no other way around it. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Wow, five stars. Then I've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark again the next night, five stars again, because that was just the greatest film of all time when it came out. Now I think... Also hashtag problematic, presumably. Um, And then finally, another James Bond for your eyes only. Only three stars. Director John Glenn. Was he the editor or was he the stuntman? Anyway, I remember for your eyes only because it was after the um, hijinks in space of Moonraker, they sort of made this announcement. This is going to be like a gritty reboot. (laughs) <laughs> it's going to be like, you know, the Daniel Craig ones. And then we went to see it and it was Roger Moore in a blazer and tan slacks. Fuck. Yeah, dang it. All right, that's 1981. Uh, let's have ourselves a clip. Hopefully this will work. I've uh, got a few more moments from my recent appearances on Chrissy Salmon Brownie on Nova 100. Here we go. Recently I went and saw the last <laughs> Avengers film. <laughs> And well, you was, see those ones there? Yeah, okay. I'll see occasionally. We'll mm. see them. Surprises I, me. I, I don't think I saw Doctor Strange. What was he? 
of Magical GP. I'm not sure what his story was. <laughs> I haven't seen all of them, so I can't put the whole story. No. In the last one, the the second of the, oh, God, I can't even remember, the Infinity Wars. Oh, I don't know. Endgame. It's so Endgame, that one. A woman with her young son was sitting there, and he'd obviously seen the Infinity War quite yeah. recently, and every time one of them appeared, one of the Avengers, this kid would go, is he one of the ones that turned into sand? <laughs> 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 because I, I don't want to spoil it for anyone who's seen it, but in yeah. the in- Infinity Wars, several of the Avengers dissolve into sand. You know, at one that. point, uh, <laughs> Spider-Man appeared, yeah. and he goes, he was sand, wasn't he? <laughs> Chris Hemsworth's house in Bryan Bay. Yes. Oh, people are obsessed with it, aren't they? Yes, because it's big and expensive. Not since Beckingham Palace. Remember that? Oh, oh yes. yes. Leighton and Beck's house. Yes. But this one, I say, Chris Hemsworth house, it just looks like Chadston, doesn't it? Does, it does. It looks exactly like Chadston. There's like a food <laughs> court. Yep. There's like two Starbucks. There's a strike there's a, bowling alley. There's a little man doing key cutting somewhere yeah, there. Yep. You can get your phone screen fixed there. <laughs> I used to have a tradition of going to, whenever the new Lord of the Rings came out, yeah. I would go to the opening day, which I think was maybe Christmas Day Boxing or Boxing Day. day. We did too, every and, single time. And I go to the Rivoli in Camberwell. We would go to the Jam Factory. Because people would show up dressed as characters from Lord yes, of the Rings. You'd absolutely. Be, you'd be in a whole section of orcs watching the film. I know, it's amazing. And <laughs> my tradition was whenever there was one of those beautiful helicopter shots yes. of the New Zealand landscape, oh. I would just start going... And you'd always get a really angry look from an elf and just turn around, what are you doing? (laughs) Ah, yes, we're back. It's uh, Sizzletown Unplugged. And that was a series of moments from Chrissy Salmon Brownie, heard weekday mornings on Nova 100 in Melbourne. Anyway, let's get to a story. And, yeah, I've dug out the one I mentioned earlier about uh, when I was kind of expelled from school for taking over uh, production of the school magazine. This appeared in my e-book, Scarcely Relevant, from 2012. I've had a few people contact me on Twitter asking where they can get that. Unfortunately, it no longer exists. Here's what can happen. Um, it was the early days of ebooks, and I got a friend of mine, very good graphic artist, to construct it for me. He took a course learned how to make an ebook, put the whole thing together, did a fantastic job, but then at some point he's moved offices and lost all the files. <laughs> so it no longer exists. How's that? Remember in the old days when, you know, there was book burnings? Now you just have to press the delete button. Anyway, let's have a story from it. This is a true story called Irresponsible Journalism. Shut up, Bartnacker! I'm not going to mention the name of my old school in this piece, not because it's any kind of secret, but because I don't want this article turning up in any Google searches. There was enough trouble when the following events occurred nearly 40 years ago. Mine was a fairly standard New Zealand public boys high school dedicated, like so many at the time, to rugby and, to a lesser extent, the education of its students. I had no interest in rugby, being what would today be called a nerd, although in those days I didn't yet wear glasses and nerds were not yet a category. They didn't hang out together. They were not yet unionised. There were essentially two groups, boys who played rugby and boys who watched them do it. 
and about four others, myself included, who spent all their time hanging out in the art room and blowing things up in the kiln. The School Magazine, a yearbook that I'll call The Clarion, was an annual mishmash of rugby results, bad poetry and photographs of students attempting to live up to the school's Latin motto, which is something about a wise man carving out his own future, probably as a professional rugby player, and not, as was my own ambition, the person who did all the sound effects for Captain Kremen. Around the beginning of the third term in August, every boy would be presented with a copy of the Clarion, and on that day, the lunch hour would play out largely in silence as we all lolled about in the quadrangle, leafing through it, looking for our own names, snickering at the poems, and berating whoever was responsible for the whole thing being so dull. The nearby university had their own magazine, and it was chockers with outrageous cartoons, rude words, and slander. The most fun you could have with the clarion was going through the text of the head boy's valedictory speech and counting how many times the words respect, strive, school spirit, backbone and achievements on the rugby field were mentioned. Looking now at the 1977 edition, my first year at high school, I see that I, at age 13, managed to get a few cartoons printed. Most are laced with comic violence. A logo for the Model Railway Club page depicts someone being flattened by a one-to-one scale model train. The cross-country page shows a phys ed teacher adding dehydrated sharks to the water jump. On the staff page, a cowering student cues for a mass caning. I have no memory of any of this, and oddly, underneath the photo of my class in the back pages, where I'm seen sporting the idiot grin that serves me in publicity photos to this day, my name is the only one not listed. It's as though, even then, they were trying to erase me from the school record. The iconoclastic, if juvenile, tone of these doodles is nowhere to be seen in the next few issues. The 1978 edition is illustrated mainly with photographs of rugby games. Aside from a near-psychotic two pages where a third former has contributed a story about a criminal gang slaughtering a group of policemen, accompanied by an unrelated drawing of a large naked silver giant expelling laser beams from his eyes. Cop killing and shark attacks are entirely absent from the 1979 issue, although the bad poetry is ramped up. This watery planet, with its endless, bottomless, featureless oceans, its juicy, golden, warm oranges and fruits, and this race who eat it. That was an extract from This Watery Planet by P. Jones of 3H. And the whole decade-ending magazine climaxes with this action poem by W. Jennings called Dirty Dan. Dirty Dan was the sheriff. Dirty Dan was cold and mean. Dirty Dan hit that man. Dirty Dan hit and hit that man. Dirty Dan made that man fall. Dirty Dan stood proud and tall. Dirty Dan walked quietly away. Dirty Dan had acted violently today. Perhaps unsurprisingly, there are far fewer poems in the 1980 edition. The magazine's style had, by this time, become even more austere. The cover is mostly blank, with the words The Clarion in a plain font, 
and a single Doric column down the left margin. It looks like the prospectus for a funeral home. But all that was about to change. Here's how it happened. In July 1981, some 20 of us turned up to volunteer for the school magazine committee. At the second meeting, that number was down to six, and by week three, there was only one member left on the editorial staff, me. Although the final product credits a co-editor, I never met him, and as far as I can tell, his only contribution was a couple of lively editorials, one of which contains a reference to the tubes, excellent use of the word rubbishy, and a genuinely funny story about how the author was alienated from his snobby fellow seventh formers after he was seen to be using a strip of newspaper as a bookmark. Apart from these pieces, the standard spiels from both headmaster and head boy, and the dutifully filed reports from the various sporting codes, I put the whole thing together on my own, spending weeks on elaborately rendered cartoons in a style that was equal parts R. Crumb and Wizard and Chips. For the first time, there are more pictures than words. Dozens of comic strips, at least one of which is blatantly ripped off from Monty Python, and several extremely unflattering caricatures of the headmaster, deputy principal and department heads. One teacher, famed for his self-aggrandising anecdotes, is depicted saying, I remember the time I shot down 17 seagulls and an African buffalo in a single shot using blank ammunition. Another known for his constant claims that boys were selling themselves short is shown saying just that again and again. A photograph of an injured boy curled in pain on the rugby field is the subject of a multi-choice quiz. This boy is A, registering his appreciation of hostel food, or B, selling himself short. The school's Board of Governors is arranged in a Last Supper tableau, all drawn as Beaker from The Muppet Show. It is claimed that the school's Latin motto translates as, Take that jacket off. This was the catch cry of our feared deputy principal, who, in cartoon after cartoon, is portrayed as a dwarf, a murderer, a tiny pet on a leash, and, on the magazine's unprecedented Mort Druckerish cover, as an angry parrot perched on the headmaster's shoulder. Although largely left alone, I had some supervision and encouragement from one of the English teachers. I recall him approving a montage of people playing tennis with large tables for the table tennis page and allowing me to file reports on the non-existent school sports of snooker, knitting and duck strangling. I also remember failing to convince him to drop the poetry section and yet I see the first page of poems is headed The Contents of the D-Block Rubbish Bin. To demonstrate that I wasn't being too harsh... Here are the first two poems. The Future by R. McMullen. The future lies beyond, unknown, incorruptible, never eventuating hereafter. The Author by S. Walden. The author searched for eternal solitude, individual, loneliness. He found it in death. I myself, using the pseudonym M. Ponk, contributed the page's final poem. Ouch by M. Ponk. Ouch. 
I can't imagine that my supervisor endorsed all the violence, innuendo, allegations of corruption, one teacher is photographed seemingly accepting cash in exchange for accreditation, and humour that would struggle to qualify as undergraduate. A what-is-it photo quiz invites teachers themselves to caption a surreptitiously taken photograph of a teacher about to have a bottle brush rammed up his backside as he walks past a student during an exam. What I do remember is freighting the whole thing to a nearby town to have several thousand copies printed, possibly before approval had been granted for the final version. By the time bundle after bundle of the finished product was being hauled into the school foyer, it was too late to remove the slagging of the previous edition's cover, the reference to the upcoming sporting pages as boring and tedious, the allegation that a teacher had bitten off a student's leg, the insertion halfway through a rather poor humour submission of one tiny cartoon man asking another, when do we get to the funny bits? The photograph of a teacher on PTA night allegedly telling two parents that their son has been shot 50 yards from the school fence. A tantalising part glimpse of a page headed the very best of the D-block toilet wall being wheeled off by a disgusted cartoon teacher. And of course, the bottle brush. I can't say the 1981 Clarion wasn't popular. For a couple of weeks there, I received the kind of acclaim that would have been so much more fun had the school any, what were they called again? Girls. For a couple of weeks there, I didn't once get my bag chucked down a stairwell or find myself heaved up onto the narrow shelf atop the lockers where the only choice was to remain perfectly still or roll off to your death. But then I started to get wind of the complaints. Not from students, but from parents and a teacher not the teacher depicted on the cover holding an open can of beer during assembly, nor the one who, it is claimed, was unable to spell the word teacher, not even the one whose photograph is one of only two on a page headed, Spot the Idiot. Rather, it was the man who is merely shown standing beneath a plummeting letter M in the frontispiece. During the week in which the magazine had been printed, this man had severely injured his foot during a woodwork class. Even though he is only cartooned from the shoulders up, under the falling M and again on the cover, he had apparently decided the caricatures were a cruel attack on a stricken man. Before long, I was summoned to the headmaster's office for a chat. The headmaster was all about rugby, and when I sat down, I noticed that his copy of the clarion was opened at the page where several rugby munters are seen prostrate before the large stone word rugby like the monkeys in 2001. For the next 20 minutes, he explained how this sarcastic drawing was just one of the things he'd had complaints about. A graphic decapitation, a reference to one teacher's frontal lobotomy, and the arse-bound bottle brush accounted for a lot of it. The general tone of ghoulishness was cited, and some had even called to complain about the autographs page at the back. This was traditionally blank so that one could fill it for the ages with the signatures of one's contemporaries. I had opted to render the words, the autographs page, in colossal black letters that filled every inch of the page except for a small signature-sized box in the corner. You couldn't even get a blank page right, said one particularly vociferous critic, himself depicted in a kilt, revealing just a hint of scrotum. 
And then there was the woodwork teacher's mangled foot. It didn't matter that I hadn't actually referred to it. It was in there somewhere, perhaps on a subliminal level. The teacher in question was apparently threatening to sue, and the headmaster suggested that the best option would be for me to leave school now, three months shy of year's end. I could stay if I wanted, but I wasn't very welcome. As I left his office, I asked myself, have I just been expelled? Over the next year, as I slaved away in the stockroom of a local army surplus store, I must have applied to the art departments of over 20 advertising agencies, but it wasn't until I included a copy of the 1981 Clarion along with my tatty selection of school cert art projects that I finally got a job. And then, to my amazement, just after I'd moved to Auckland to commence said employment, I got a call from the English teacher who'd overseen the simultaneously triumphant and disastrous school magazine saying that he wanted me to do the cover for the 1982 edition. I was still browned off about the whole business, so I dashed off a nasty drawing of the deputy principal executing students, again, via firing squad, while the headmaster held up scores from the sideline, fully expecting them not to run it. But they did. And then, the next year, they asked me to do it again. For the 1983 cover, I expended even less time on a cartoon of a student switching on one of these newfangled computers and recoiling in hair-standing horror at the image of, yes, the headmaster. And again, they ran with it. The headmaster later had the final word when he sacked my mother from the school's admin office, surely one of the few times where two generations have been expelled by the same man. And to this day, I am still occasionally sent copies of the 1981 Clarion to autograph. But, of course, some idiot has cocked up the autographs page. And that is it for this edition of Sizzletown Unplugged. Thanks for joining me. Sizzletown proper will be back in a fortnight's time along with Matt Dower and his battery of noises. And don't forget to visit our sponsors at allegiancewines.com.au. See you in a fortnight's time. Cheers. <laughs> no nudity. Boobs.